as we start today this this sermon, you know the the third one in our series on Habakkuk, um, just thinking, you know the the words of the song, the hymn, "Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound," that saved a really wonderful guy like me. That's how it goes, right? And we all know that that's not the way the hymn goes. We all know why it doesn't go that way. It doesn't matter if we are Old Testament believers or New Testament believers. We know that we are not so wonderful, right? That there's a reason why we need to celebrate communion, because we need a Savior. The Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it this way. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil or committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I think it's very true. Kim Jong-un or ISIS make really easy targets for us. That's evil, right? And sometimes we're tempted to call some people a bit closer to home evil. Usually we don't want to call our neighbor evil, except for that one guy. We certainly don't want to call ourselves or think of ourselves as being evil. And so we get really good at sort of changing the subject or deflecting blame or we otherwise fill up our time and our minds and our lives with lots of stuff so we don't have to think about it, right? But we know the truth. Solzhenitsyn was right. Good and evil both live inside of us. Habakkuk knew this, right? And that's part of what we're going through as we look at this book. And about a hundred years before Habakkuk lived and wrote the prophets Hosea and Amos and Jonah and Micah and Isaiah were all warning the northern kingdom of Israel you're sinning you're breaking the covenant and judgment is coming correction is coming and then in Habakkuk's day he, along with Nahum and Zephaniah and Jeremiah, were doing the exact same thing for the southern kingdom of Judah, about a hundred years apart. The people of Judah had forsaken their part of the covenant. And Habakkuk, as we've seen, is crying out to God, How long, Lord? All I see is fighting. All I see is violence. And he says it this way, In verse 4, the law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. No justice, and what gets called justice is twisted. Sounds eerily familiar to me. Sounds a lot like today. Habakkuk knew the truth. He knew that his people, God's people, had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten the covenant, and in fact, they had become just like the people who were oppressing them. 
He wants a return to the truth, a return to the covenant. He wants the people of the covenant to live as if they actually are the people of the covenant, right? What, what did that mean? What did that look like? The people of Israel were called to make God's name known among the nations. That was their job. To show that there's a true God in Israel. Not a God of the storms or crops or the sun. Not some God that, like the other gods of the ancient world, needed human beings to serve them. But instead, a God who chose a people to represent him. And in Exodus 19, at the very beginning, when the covenant gets given, Moses is talking to God on Mount Sinai, and God says that you are going to be a special treasure for me, a kingdom of priests, right? That's their job. And Habakkuk sees, we're not doing our job. And he calls out to God and says, God, fix this, do something, this is not right. And so God says, okay, I will. For 300 years, the Assyrian Empire has terrorized the ancient Near East. They are brutal and cruel and merciless. These are the guys who invented crucifixion. And in 722 BC, their king, Sennacherib, comes to the northern kingdom of Israel and destroys Samaria, takes it over. And just a year later, they besieged Jerusalem and Judah comes under their thumb as well. And if you are interested in what's going on here, it's 2 Kings chapter 16 to 18. But now it's a hundred years later and Assyria is in decline and there are whispers from the east. A new old power is rising. For centuries, actually millennium, the city of Babylon has flourished. The Sumerians and Akkadians had empires that started there. The Amorites kingdom started and was centered there. And if you remember junior high history or geography, you've heard of Hammurabi in his law code. And that's who that was and where they were from. Babylon was a city of gods and kings of gardens and learning and even the Assyrians had treated it with respect. In retrospect, probably a bad idea. Because their vassal king, Nabopolassar, there's a nice name for you, if you're looking for a name for a child. Um, he made an alliance with the Medes and he started taking over. And in 612 BC, right around the time that Habakkuk is writing, he lays siege to Nineveh, and in three months, the capital of Assyria falls. And a new Babylonian empire is being born, and that's the world that Habakkuk is living in. And Habakkuk wants a response. He wants Israel to, and Judah to, to do right. And God says, I got this. Here's what I'm going to do. Right now, raising up the Babylonians. They're coming. They're coming across the deserts like a desert wind. Correction is coming, hard and hot, and it's coming soon. And Habakkuk doesn't like God's answer. In fact, that correction seems cruel. And I think today, 2,600 years later, we're not so different from the people of God 
in the Old Testament. We are the church, the people of God, the people of the new covenant as we celebrate in communion, right? And it's really interesting that in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter uses very similar language that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. In 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, And you are living stones that God has building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. In verse 9b, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's own very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So, the job of Christians, the church today, is just the same as the job of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. To show who God is, to bear witness to this real God, not some small God's. Not the gods of the things that we like, maybe even the the good things that are out there. But all too often, just like Israel, we, the church, have a problem. We sell our birthright for a bit of political power or relative comfort. Maybe we know the truth, and instead of sharing it as good news with our family and friends and neighbors, what do we do? We use that truth as a club to beat people over the head because they are not like us. We're right. And then, correction comes. We need it just as much as Israel did. And just like Habakkuk, we don't like the answer. Suddenly, the correction that we ask for, God, fix your church, God, heal our nation, becomes wait a minute, hold it, God. Wait, you know, I know we've messed up. We didn't do everything right, but you do know who they are, right? They're worse than we are. So what do we do when God's correction seems cruel? That is what we're looking at today in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 to 2, 1. I'm reading from the NLT this morning, so it might be a little bit different than what you're used to. Habakkuk says, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Have we no, are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their nets and burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods who have made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquest? I will climb up to my watchtower and stand, guard, stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
its truth. We thank you that it is not a fairy tale that sugarcoats things, but gives us reality, the messy reality. And we know that very often we need correction ourselves and we're not particularly inclined to like the correction you give us. So we pray that you would show us today just a little bit of how we should respond, choices we should make as we respond to your correction. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So obviously you don't have an outline in your bulletins this morning. Um, So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of where we're going. Um, It's a fairly simple uh, outline. We're going to look at three choices that we need to make when we're facing correction from God that seems cruel. And we're going to look at a contrast. We're going to see our natural temptation, and then we're going to see Habakkuk's example in these three choices. So, points one, two, three, and A and B in, in each one of them. Pretty simple. So, our first choice is to start with God. Because our temptation, when suffering comes our way, when we are being corrected, our natural tendency is to focus on the injustice of our situation, whatever that is. Woe is me. Look how terrible my situation is. It's so unfair. God, how could you do this to me? Right? That's what we do. And the subtle, kind of really tricky part about this is it's not entirely 100% wrong. Because the best lies, the most effective lies, are the ones that contain an element of truth. And the reality is, very often, the suffering that we face, even if it's corrective, has evil involved in it. The Babylonians were not nice people. Okay? They're coming to take over, and they're not doing it gently. And it's tempting to think, if we look at verse 13, will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? It's really tempting to think that all Habakkuk is doing is complaining. But that's not what he's doing here. Because we st- if we start with 13, verse 13, we miss something really important. What Habakkuk's example for us is that he remembered the God of Israel first. If we blow right by this, if we just get to the complaint, we miss perhaps the most crucial part of this passage. We miss the starting point. And if we miss the starting point, we get off on the wrong foot, If we don't start with God, what do we start with? Ourselves. If we don't start with God, we start with our needs and our problems, and we start off making the wrong choice. And when we do that, we start with something that ultimately can't give us the answers we seek anyway. It just gets us stuck. And that's not what Habakkuk does. He says, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal. That's just the first line of the first verse. 
We could spend the entire day just there. We won't, but we could. Habakkuk has a problem with God's correction. Why? Because at least on the surface of it, God's response, bringing the Babylonians in, seems to conflict with God's character. God, how can you do this? How does this work? And starting our responses, the choices we make, starting with God, changes our focus. And this one choice at the very beginning can mean the difference between a sinful reaction on the one hand and a sanctified reaction on the other. Between honoring God through lament, as Tim talked about a couple of weeks ago, on the one hand, or frankly being a whiner who's just accusing God on the other. Those are very different things. And Habakkuk chooses to start with God. And if you read in verse 12, O Lord, that word Lord is probably all small capital letters in your Bible. Just as a side note, when you see that in the Old Testament, the word Lord, small capital letters, that means Yahweh. Generally speaking, in most of your Bibles, most modern translations, they have, a, they have a, an introduction to their translation at the beginning of your Bible. And you can go in there and look, and it will probably tell you how they deal with divine names. Lord in all small capital letters, it means Yahweh. The one who is. The one without whom there is nothing and can be nothing. And this is God's personal name. The personal name of the God of Israel. Not just any God. This is the God of the covenant. The one who chooses a people. But that's not all Habakkuk says. O Lord my God. The English word God here is the word Elohim. In this case, the emphasis is on God's power. Not just any God, but the God who is the powerful God who is my God. This is the only time in the Old Testament that this exact construction is used. And when it's the only time, we should pay attention. Habakkuk says, O Lord my God, because this is his God, personally. He's in the middle of this crisis for the, for the nation. And his complaint is to his God. There is a reason that he can come to God this way. He is a person, a child of the covenant. And that gave him standing. And he can say to God, both as an individual and as a member of the people of God, you are my God. And then he says, my Holy One. You know, it's one thing for us to question God. It's another thing for us to do it rightly. Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I hear it going both ways in my mind. He does it rightly. He does it by starting with who God is. Holy, pure, set apart. And the implication here is that God by his very nature can't do wrong. It looks like God's doing wrong right now because the Babylonians are terrible. They're worse 
than Israel. But what he's doing is showing us the way to start. I know this looks bad, God, but I know who you are. And that's where he starts. And we do well when we question God, when we question his correction, to remember the kind of God we are talking to. This is the God who has proven himself over and over to be holy and just, to be trustworthy. And of course, that's the question we really have, right? God, can I trust you? Are you really for me? Have you changed? And for a lot of us, God, are you safe? And every time I think about this, I think about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and C.S. Lewis. And if you're familiar with the book at all, the picture of Christ in this, in this book is a lion, Aslan. And there's these four children who are the main characters and the beaver family is helping them and talking to them. And the kids are getting worried about this idea of this Oslin character. And they ask, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's response is, haven't you been listening? Of course he isn't safe. But he's the king. And he's good. And that's the God that Habakkuk is telling us about here. And for the Christian... Starting with God means starting with Jesus. Jesus says, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. If we want to understand God, if we want to see him, if we want to start with God, we have to start with Jesus. Who he is, what he was like, what he taught, what he did. And we do that by reading this book, the Gospels. We do this by reciting who God is. Habakkuk recites who God is back to God. And it's a reminder to himself and us of the trust he can place in God. And you know what? The early church did the same thing. Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20 or Philippians 2 these passages that sort of encapsulate who Jesus is and what he's about, they were probably hymns in the early church, reciting who God is back to one another and back to God. And that is what Habakkuk does here. And that lays the foundation for the second choice, which is to seek God's answers. Our temptation when faced with suffering, when faced with correction that seems cruel, unthinking reaction. When we face him with suffering of any kind, especially when we believe it's unfair or out of proportion, what do we do? We react. We don't think, we just do. Right? It's kind of like autopilot. I am not at all tempted by the new technology of self-driving cars. Have no desire for that at all. I like to drive, right? Now, the little button you can push to do the parallel parking, that sounds good to me, because that's not driving, right? And we have the, we have the, the 
button we can push, boom, autopilot. Here it goes. And ours is a little bit different. It's sort of defend at all costs mode. We react, we justify. And we inevitably make it about us when we react. So it's kind of interesting. If we have this unthinking reaction when faced with suffering, what do we do? We throw the first choice out the window because we can't start with God when we react that way. But Habakkuk's example is not like that. He gives us real questions. Right? When we were teenagers, I don't know about you, but I think it was pretty easy to fall in love with the idea of a person and not the actual person. You get a crush on someone and then you get to know the person after the fact. And you find yourself in this weird situation because the beautiful person on the outside doesn't match up with what's going on inside. And sometimes we go to great lengths to avoid the hard questions, to justify that person that we like, right? We explain away problems and, the, and everything, but sooner or later we have to deal with reality. Something doesn't match up here. And that's sort of what Habakkuk is dealing with right now. Because what he sees of God on the outside and what he knows about God don't seem to match up to him. But the difference between us at 15, Habakkuk is, he's not avoiding the hard questions. He asks lots of them in this passage. He doesn't shy away from those tough tough questions. In fact, one could almost argue they get bigger and bigger as it goes on. In verse 12, you aren't going to wipe us out, are you? In verse 13, are you just going to wink at the Babylonians' treachery? You do see what they're like, right? In verse 13, why are you silent? We may be bad, but they're worse. In verse 14 and 15, we're your people, right? So how come we're like fish to be caught and strung up on a stringer and then feasted on? Verse 16, you see that they don't even recognize you, right? They're gloating. You raise them up, but they think it was all them. They don't see their need for you. They chalk it up to their skill, their power, their might. They wouldn't know the meaning of the word repentance if it bit them. In fact, their entire religion denies you. As a side note, there in verse 16, the Babylonian religion there, I think is a pretty good example of what human-made religion always does. Habakkuk shows that it's futile because what do we end up doing? We worship the things that we made. We end up worshiping ourselves. And in verse 17, how long? God, they're doing all the things that I asked you to punish us for, and worse. They're chewing up nations and spitting them out. It's not just us they punish, they're destroying everyone. 
And you know what I love about this passage? More than anything else, God can handle our hardest questions. Sometimes we think, right here in the early 21st century, that we are the first people ever to wrestle with the kinds of questions that we ask. God, how can you? I can't believe in a God who? Fill in the blank. And we act as if these questions have never been asked before. And they're right here in Habakkuk. And frankly, for 2,000 years, the church has been wrestling with these tough questions and giving answers. There is no question we can ask that God hasn't heard or can't handle. The specifics of our situations change. Even those aren't as unique as we would like to believe they are. The technology changes, but the issues, the heart of the matter, don't change. And when, God's, when suffering comes and God's correction seems cruel, we get the choice, the opportunity to ask why. Now, we may not like the answer we're given. We may not even get an answer that we can understand in this lifetime. But we get to ask. God never says to us, don't question me. Right? He's interacting with Habakkuk a lot right here. The key is for us to build off that first choice of starting with God, who he is, what he does. And that's what Habakkuk does. He doesn't react. He cries out to God for answers because he knows who God is. And this doesn't seem to fit. He's not belligerent. He's not whining. He's not claiming to be better than God or more holy or any of those things because he's the one who started at the very beginning of this book and established Israel needs to be corrected. And his answers really boil down to, how does, or his questions boil down to, how does your response square with your character? How can you use evil even to correct us? Why do you let them claim your glory? As much as these questions on the surface are about the situation that, that Judah faces, really, at bottom, these are questions about who God is. About his relationship with his people. They're the very same questions that we ask. See, we are made to communicate with God. To commune with the God who made us. Genesis 1 tells us we're created in his image. And I believe that what we see there in Genesis is that this need to communicate with our creator is hardwired into the very nature of the universe. That's part of who we are. And so these questions to God and about God matter. Because at the bottom, what they're really doing is asking, is this the God we were made for? Or is this some other God? You see, this is the cry of the world around us. Most people do not question whether or not there is a God, new atheists notwithstanding. Most people ask, which God are you talking about and can I trust him? Can I trust this God to be for me? 
And these are important questions. They are not easy questions. And we come to them with our own expectations and our own baggage, our own hang-ups. And all too often, we're not really asking the questions because we want an answer. We are asking them because we want to justify ourselves. We want to make ourselves feel better about the way that we look at the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we asking real questions? Are we asking questions like Habakkuk did or to justify ourselves? He asks real questions because he wants real answers. He wants to hear from God, the one whom he's always trusted. And so he cries out in prayer and he asks those hard questions. And he expects, as we're going to see in a moment, an answer. But he can only ask the questions he asks because of where he started. Because he started with God. And he builds on that solid foundation. And then he asks the questions. It's not about his desires. It's not about his feelings. It's about who God is. And so that's how he starts. The Bible, you see, is God's revelation of himself to us and with us. And in and through this, we see what God's like. What he wants for us, what he's willing and able to do on our behalf. This is a real world, no holds barred, messy kind of life text. We read it and we learn from it not to master information, but to make sure that we have, or even to make sure that we have the right answers, but rather we read it so that we know God. Way back when, over 20 years ago, in a preaching class, when I was doing nine-minute sermons, I can't imagine doing a nine-minute sermon at this point in my life. I couldn't imagine doing one then either, but it was for opposite reasons. Um, we had, to, we had to preach a sermon and the prof would sit in the back in a control room and behind a window and he, we had video cassettes. We had to bring our own video cassettes and he would tape us and he would critique us as we were doing it. And I will never forget one time, I have no idea what the passage was about. Afterwards, Dr. Fink came out and handed me my tape and he said, Kevin, you clearly have the text, but my question is, does the text have you? And I have been haunted by that question in the best possible way ever since. And that's the point of this. The text to have us. For God to have us. And that's what Habakkuk had. And that's why he could ask the questions that he asked. We still get to ask our questions. The disciples asked lots of questions. They knew and trusted Jesus. And that's what we're called to. And that's why his questions are good ones. And that's why he makes his third choice. Which is to stand guard. This is the where the rubber hits the road question. Or response. It's where life happens. The truth is that sometimes God's correction seems all out of proportion to us. And we cannot see in the moment why or how or what we're supposed to do. And it can seem either wrong, 
God can seem untrustworthy or not in control. And I'm not quite sure which one is the worst case scenario of those two. But we only see a part, a small part. So what we do next matters. See, our temptation is to do one of two things. To run away or become the monster we hate. It's fight or flight, right? Confronted with a bad situation, it is a literal physiological response. We either run away or we fight. And this is what we do. It works really well at preserving human life. It is not a good idea when we're responding to God. A lot of people, when we're faced with the consequences of our sin, or the sins of someone that we love, simply run away. We run away from the situation, or the truth, or from God himself. We run away from marriages that we have ruined because of the actions we've taken. We see the person we love who comes out as gay. And instead of being loving and being truthful, we decide to change what we believe. God, or in, maybe entirely, God, if that's what you're like, I want nothing to do with you. Right? We walk away. Why did Israel keep on having the same problems over and over? Why do we? Because they ran from correction. They wanted to do it their way. We want to do it our way, to be the ones in control. And we think that we know better than God. That the things we want here and now are more important than what God says we need. We don't think that we're really that bad. Then we have the opposite temptation, right? So some of us run away and some of us fight. And you've all met Christians like this, right? They're mad at pretty much everyone, right? Especially someone who says something that they disagree with. doesn't matter if you are a believer or non-believer. If you say something that they disagree with, you're going to get it. And you can see it coming. And instead of telling the truth in love, instead of being Christ to people, we club people over the heads with the truth wrapping it up in Christian words. And instead of acting like the people of God, we act like the Assyrians and the Babylonians who have oppressed us. And that's exactly what Habakkuk said was wrong. But that's not what Habakkuk does. He is patiently vigilant, expecting a response. He made the harder choice. He chooses to stand guard. I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Remember, he's not happy with God. He's not happy about God's correction, but he remembers who he is. He sets out his questions and he waits for God's response. And that's what we need to do. The Hebrew in this last phrase is kind of tricky. Scholars are divided. Some people say that it should read that Habakkuk has to, is, or that God is going to answer Habakkuk's response. And some scholars say, no, this is, Habakkuk is going to have to answer for when God rebukes him. Either is possible. But in either case, 
there is a very real choice that's being made here. He does something important. He doesn't decide that he's going to solve the seeming contradiction between God's character and the coming correction. He doesn't decide that I get the final word or I'm going to fix this. He decides to wait to see what God is going to do. And that's hard. And that's what we need to do. We can be patient and alert, standing guard and watching for what God is doing. God said in chapter 1, verse 5, see what I am doing. But to do this, we have to be in position to see and to hear from him. We have to be alert and paying attention. That's what guard towers are for. And at the very least, I think this means two things. The first is prayer. This entire book is Habakkuk praying to God and God responding to him. That's the entire book of Habakkuk. And we have to make sure that we are praying. Even when it seems that God is simply going to be silent. And the second is we can't know. This goes back to the very first point. We cannot know what God is like when we don't pay attention to what he is known to have done and what he has told us. A lot of us think we know who God is and what God's all about. And it's all of the things that we feel instead of what he has shown us. And we need both of those two things in order to be in a position to stand guard. And I would add this about a watchtower. Watchtowers are designed to protect a city or a castle. They are not solo endeavors. And furthermore, a watchtower, when you climb up there to your guard post, the whole point is to get 360 degrees of vision. And you can't do that on your own. You need more than one person. We are the body of Christ together. We celebrate the body in communion. And God saves us as individuals, but not to live as individuals, but to be a part of his body. And that's what a watchtower is for. If we aren't doing that, you know what happens? We climb up in the watchtower on our own, and we can only look in one direction. And we miss what God's doing behind us. We need one another for this. God is never going to give us all of the answers that we seek. He's certainly not going to do things completely in the way that we think he ought to do it. But over and over again, Scripture shows us that God is trustworthy. Our questions are real. The things that we face are real. And frankly, the correction that we need is real. But our hope is even more real. What is our hope? We celebrated communion this morning. Instead of a prayer at the end, I want to read for you from Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 13. Because I believe that this passage is essentially the writer of Hebrews going through the exact same things that... Habakkuk is showing us. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There is no different God. We just see him differently because we see him through the person and work of Jesus. 
And this is what the writer of Hebrews says to us. And I want you to to think of this as a prayer and an encouragement as we close this morning. Hebrews 12, chapter chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means you are, you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Since we have respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Amen and amen.